On February 9th of 2004, 21-year-old UMass student Maura Murray drove from her dorm in Amherst, Massachusetts to the White Mountains of New Hampshire. At approximately 7.27 p.m., Maura spun out her 1996 Saturn on a hairpin turn on Route 112 in North Haverhill. There has never been a credible sighting of Maura since. Maura is 5 foot 7 inches tall. She weighs 120 pounds, and she has brown hair and hazel eyes. If you have any information regarding Maura's disappearance, please submit it to us, the Murray family at Direct at gmail.com, or the New Hampshire State Police Cold Case Unit. This is Missing Maura Murray. Welcome back to Missing Maura Murray. I'm Tim here today with Lance. Lance, how are you today? I am doing so well. How are you today? I'm doing great. We speak to an old friend, a good friend, Patrick Hines from True Crime Obsessed and the new podcast, Obsessed with Disappeared. Yeah, it's so fun to have Patrick on because he really brings a lot of uh, energy to the show and he brings a lot of... uh, positive vibes you know like every time you talk to him he's got nothing bad to say he's got there's never any uh, drama talking to him and he has a lot of good information and he actually dropped a couple of pieces on us that were uh, a bit eye-opening you know you can work on this particular disappearance for so many years and then he'll say something this had something to do with the money that uh, Maura took out from the ATM and he said this thing which you'll hear I don't want to give a spoiler away but it kind of blew my mind and it made me look at that moment a little bit differently yeah, Patrick is obsessed with true crime, and his new show, Obsessed with Disappeared, is the about the TV show Disappeared um, from ID Discovery that everyone, of course, knows. I'm sure everyone listening to this has listened to the Maura Murray, or watched the Maura Murray episode. So Patrick and his co-host, Ellen Marsh, who is hilarious as well, they break down episodes of the show Disappeared. So Maura Murray's episode is one of the first. I think it's actually the sixth episode that Disappeared aired. So Patrick and Ellen, they tackled it right away. And because Patrick is so obsessed with it and has watched all these episodes, you know, you can kind of get something from the format. Like, oh, so what is weird about this case based on the format that you know that Disappeared does? So make sure to check out their show. It's really great and it's funny too. And they have an interview with Julie Murray on their feed as well. And I swear, Tim, at some point in the next few years, we will have another live show with Patrick and with uh, Jillian from True Crime Obsessed uh, and Maggie Freeling. We've been planning on doing something in Boston and Philadelphia, but the current state of pandemic and isolation has kept us from doing that. Uh, That is no longer the case. Uh, We were supposed to do something in August. Probably, definitely not happening, but stay tuned. Um, You can hear it in Patrick's voice and in our voices. We, we sort of uh, are having withdrawals for each other, and we need to get get back to doing something live. Well, speaking of live, Lance, we're actually going to do a Missing Maura Murray live show this Thursday night on Get Vocal. So that's going to be July 9th, 2020 at 9 p.m. Eastern. We normally do a Crawl Space Live, and sometimes we'll have some guests and cover some different cases and things like that. But this week, we're going to do a special Maura Murray show. So tune in for that. There is a link in the show notes. This is a special Maura Murray show that we 
invite family of Mora's to come on and, and contribute to. We will have an open platform, so we will discuss details of Mora's disappearance, and maybe we can take this as a bit of a reset for her case. And the Prosecutors podcast, which is uh, a new podcast, so they kind of did that too. They did a few episodes on Maura Murray, um, and and that was really great. I think sort of, sort of a reset to kind of refresh your focus, and I, th- I thought they brought up some really good points. And we'll have them on on a future episode and uh, get into Mora a little bit more. And the thing about them is that they have a background in law, and they have a, a way to approach cases very... Uh, methodically and very pragmatically. And you can hear that in their episodes about Mora and in the way they analyze the details of her case. So it's very refreshing to hear, you know, because sometimes you and I, Tim, maybe have been emotional in the past. We try to rein it in, but it's refreshing to hear a couple of professionals taking some emotion out of it and get the details back. Okay, Lance, so before we play the audio with Patrick Hines, we just wanted to kind of do a little update on what's been going on lately because the community out there, especially on Twitter, and that's the one that we're plugged into most, um, has really kind of, well, it's it's been explosive um, over the past couple weeks on there with kind of everyone getting involved, going back and forth, Bill Rausch as well getting involved. I'll say from from my point of view, we have had Aaron Larkin on the show. She has provided us with information about the case. I wish it was still the situation where we had a trusting relationship with her. Something broke along the along the way. I'm not sure exactly when it was or what happened. It probably has something to do with her relationship with Bill Rausch and her relationship with James Renner and their mutual relationship. Maybe that's where it started. I don't know. One thing I do know is that a holiday weekend... After people have been in isolation for months, you had the 4th of July holiday weekend, gorgeous weather, gorgeous weather, maybe spend some time with your family. There was activity on Twitter for almost 24 hours straight. There was activity on Twitter, nonstop manic, manic behavior on Twitter all night, overnight. And it, I don't know what the purpose of that is other than to bring this show down and to and to bring our careers down i can't think of an alternative can you tim well yeah i mean it's not just about us though um they really distract with um renner's a bad person and a big part of it for us lance started when we put a statement out on twitter from the maura murray uh the missing maura murray Twitter page, we said that we did not want to have Bill Rausch on our airwaves until after his trial for felony third-degree sexual abuse was over. That trial is supposed to happen in 2021. Now, we had had some phone calls with Bill, and we talked about that trial a little bit. We talked about the last one that he was in in November, which he was found guilty of stalking. He was given a protection order to stay away from his victim. And I think it's very, very important to put out there because there are some people out there like Bill and Aaron who are saying that Bill's victim was not afraid of Bill and she was afraid of Renner. This is this is inaccurate. This is a lie, a flat out lie. Bill's victim told Aaron Larkin that she felt unsafe directly in reference to Bill. She was, quote, terrified of Bill, not Renner. She claimed in an email to us that the I feel unsafe text message from Bill's victim to Aaron was in regards to Renner, but that is not true. That is a lie. 
Based on the court transcripts, she felt unsafe. She told Aaron, and at that same time, Aaron, instead of doing anything about it like a good friend would or should, she took to Reddit and defended Bill Roush in his upcoming indictment trial and said Renner was lying. There's no grand jury and there's not going to be an indictment. Well, turns out you were wrong about those things. And when your quote-unquote friend was asking you for help, you turned your back on her. So there have been these moments where people who have been looking into Morris' case, like Aaron Larkin and Scott Wall, they have information about Morris' case, and that information is not shared with us. And when we put something out there that is not accurate because we don't have this information, then that's used against us. So it makes me wonder why that information is being kept from us when we're being told by them that we are the authorities on this case. That's what we're told by them. We're the authorities on the case. If they had information about the case, why won't they share it? Why won't they open up the community that they want so desperately to, to get along everyone you know, singing and, and pushing for the greater cause? Why do they keep information to themselves and then call us a gossip pod? Now, you just brought up a moment where it it might appear someone might be able to say, I wasn't talking about that. I wasn't saying this or that. Are these classified as lies? Yes, that's definitely a lie because we had a text conversation with Erin Larkin and she admitted that when Bill's victim said she was feeling unsafe, that it was about Bill. So I don't know what, actually, I do know what she's doing. She is gaslighting people. She is lying to people because they have not seen these court transcripts. They are literally just banking on the fact that they are sealed and won't come out. And do not, do not let them convince you that Bill's victim is contacting Aaron. Because this is what this email was. Aaron sent sent us this email saying, hey, Bill's victim she really doesn't want you guys talking about that. She really thinks you should take down that episode and these things that you said about that case. Well, that's not coming from Bill's victim, Aaron. Sorry. Bill's victim or Bill's victim's lawyer can email us themselves if that's really true, if that's coming from them. Absolutely, we'll welcome that. And we do know that she did not have, Bill's victim, I mean, did not have a favorable opinion of Renner. Definitely thought he was aggressive in his approach. That was that was one time before all of this happened. And then she realized James Renner is more accurate on this than she originally thought. And she, guess what, changed her mind and her opinion and saw that maybe this guy is actually trying to help me. Right. Well, Bill's victim did turn to James Renner at one point and say that she was afraid that she was going to go missing. This is what she said in court. In a, in a court of law, she was afraid she was going to go missing. She was afraid of Bill, and she contacted James Renner. And now when they tell you this court had nothing to do with Maura Murray, this is not true. Maura Murray's name is all over these court transcripts. The case technically wasn't about Maura Murray. It was about Bill stalking and abusing his victim. But with the context of him having a missing girlfriend, that's why we were in court in the first place. That's why they were in court in the first place. Another lie, Aaron said that she was sitting next to Sharon Roush in court, but Bill on Twitter just this week said that Sharon Roush was not in court. So I don't know where the inconsistency is there, but someone's lying about that one. And I also want to be clear, we're not calling the Murrays liars. We're, we're not attacking the family. We've, we've had a show about Maura Murray for a long time that has 
graduated into a show about other missing people and raising awareness for other missing people, including any information we have on Moore's case uh, in, in subsequent episodes. So to be clear again, we're not trying to attack the family. We've never tried to attack the family. We might have said a couple of things that have been disparaging towards maybe Fred's stubbornness at times, but we've also issued apologies, numerous apologies for anything we said that might appear that we're critical of the family. Julie Murray said herself, be critical of us. Look into everybody, including family. That's and and we do, but we we've never attacked the family. We never will attack the family. It doesn't make sense. They've been through too much. All we're trying to do is shed some light on the reasoning behind these people's behavior. It it, it blows my mind that that someone like Guy Parody could threaten Maggie Freeling's life and other people's lives, and that gets lost in in the in the swamp of Renner's a bad guy and Maggie Freeling is a is a hack journalist like. Can, no one called for Guy Parody to get arrested for that, which he should have been, but I just don't get it. I don't get the, the defense of, of people that, that are almost indefensible. And I, I just want to point out again, because they, Bill, Aaron, and Scott Wall now, they kind of try to connect themselves with the Murrays in that way. So to your point, Lance, criticism of Bill Roush, Aaron Larkin, and Scott Wall is not criticism of the Murrays. If they are trying to tell you that, it is purposeful. They are trying to manipulate. They are trying to make it seem like if you criticize them that you're criticizing the Murrays. That is not what what is happening. Again, Lance, the Murrays, we, we have a good relationship with Julie and Kurt, and they invited us to look into everybody. And so now we're doing a little bit of due diligence. We're uh, getting together. We're working with uh, some people on some on some avenues of this and this is the reaction that it's it's generating online it's absolutely incredible to me now bill roush claimed on twitter that we were great advocates for the missing which uh, he's right he's absolutely right thank you yeah thank you bill you know who's not a great advocate for victims is aaron larkin so during this phone call we had with her after our episode in, G- in january she said that the victim won a cash prize from court Now, the truth is that Bill's victim was awarded $1,800 for a security system and locks to be changed. Many locks in the entire apartment complex. Bill Roush had keys to her apartment complex, to her apartment, and he never gave them back. He said he sent them to her and they must have got lost in the mail. Well, (laughs) I don't know what to say about that, but again, she was, quote, terrified of Bill, end quote. She contacted Renner because she was afraid she was going to go missing. That was stated in court. We are not here to re-litigate the trial. We aren't lawyers or judges. We default to the judge in this case who said the case isn't close. Quote, he ruled against Bill and called him a narcissist and found him guilty of stalking. Again, quote, not even close is what the judge said. Bill's victim was so terrified of Bill that she didn't stay at her own place for weeks at a time. And when she would, she sometimes slept on the floor away from the windows in her apartment. Talk about trauma. You want to talk about re-traumatizing the victim? Erin Larkin, how about not posting pictures of the victim on Twitter? And in addition to this, Tim, there appears to be this misinformation campaign. You mentioned the wording of cash prize. We know that Erin is very specific with her words. She's been specific with her words and very detailed in the information that she's provided us about Morris' case, which we appreciate. And we appreciate the fact that she's very deliberate with what she says. 
and a settlement in order to buy a security system for your home to defend yourself against somebody that you're afraid of is not a cash prize. Those were deliberate words that she used to make it look like what she was awarded was something that she did for money. That she was awarded this, like she got money from this. No, she was. She it was a settlement that happens in every single court case where where there is some sort of financial compensation in order to achieve some result of the case. I'm I'm hoping I'm making sense right there. Yeah, to call it a cash prize is so insulting to Bill's victim. To it's insulting to victims everywhere to think that this woman, Bill's victim, wanted to be in court watching a sex tape watching that they made her watch that talk about dirty lawyer tricks make no mistake when you're reading these things that are put on twitter this is all intentional this is all intentional to to say that the allegations against scott wall are are being used as leverage against something that's that's not leverage like we've never leveraged anything uh, the the court case, what we're talking about right now, this is not to gain an upper hand in some nefarious plot that we've been concocting for months. This is simply to say there's a victim out there. There are victims out there and there are people who are delivering information so that the people who have allegedly perpetrated these acts have a defense. And, and, and the 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 court of public opinion is more important in these people's eyes. Right. And you reference Scott Wall saying we're trying to leverage information like about the uh, charges, uh, the, the old charges where he had uh, been charged with possession of child pornography. He was not found guilty. But when that was unearthed, that was quite shocking to us. Absolutely shocking. There is no chance in hell we would have been caught on a panel with Scott Wall had we known he had been, what he had been charged with. And you're speaking about the panel at CrimeCon in New Orleans last year where we were joined by Julie Murray, Maggie Freeling, Art Roderick, Aaron Larkin, Scott Wall, and none of us would have taken part in that panel had we known about these allegations. We would have communicated with Scott beforehand to find out what his side of the story was. Again, this is information that was never given to us. Maybe we don't deserve that information, but we definitely would not have compromised the morals that we have built up doing this to sit there on a panel with him at, at, a, at an event that is supposed to be about protection and justice and about all things true crime. And it fills me with a certain amount of rage knowing that people knew about that and chose to keep quiet instead of doing the responsible thing and saying, hey, we should all talk about this. Instead, it comes out the way it came out and everybody blows up and then it's called leveraging this information against something. Come on. Right. And what what he was referencing was when those allegations had become publicly known, at least when we found out, um, you met you emailed Julie Murray or we emailed Julie Murray and said, I mean, honestly, we were shocked and we were like, wow, we didn't think that they knew about that. And we said, you know, do would you like help in taking over like public duties? We honestly we felt like they had let someone really creepy into their inner circle. And we thought maybe they were waiting for us to ask. 
Now, I think Renner on his blog said that they declined. They didn't they didn't decline. They they just I don't think they responded at all. I actually feel bad that we didn't offer something like that way way back when we first started this. I feel we didn't realize that this was going to be necessary and we did become the unofficial voice of the case and maybe that's something that we should have offered a long time ago and and started the direction going where the family wants the direction to go uh and instead of having people hijack it right it never occurred to us to ask um until that moment and then we did it wasn't like we wanted to uh you know get take additional duties we'll do whatever they want you know we'll help if they want I don't know what Scott's still doing in the picture. I will block him as soon as I see him on Twitter. So, And another thing, Bill Roush has not been ruled out officially, as Aaron has claimed on Reddit. This is incorrect. This is a lie. In fairness, this is a missing persons case, and nobody has been ruled out, but especially not the boyfriend of the missing person. Now, he does have an alibi for the time where Moore was in the accident in North Haverhill, New Hampshire. But again, that does not mean he was ruled out. He has not been ruled out. And I'll reinforce what you said there about his alibi. He does have an alibi. It's a pretty rock-solid alibi. It's really hard to get any sort of leave from any sort of military complex, any sort of army base, any sort of training facility. It's very difficult to take any sort of leave, especially short especially last-minute leave. Yeah, and I want to reference one uh, tweet that I had on uh, July 5th um, because I think he might have taken it the wrong way. I'm not really sure. But he had claimed that we are trying to tie that case or his upcoming case to Mora. And once again, Lance, he told us that Mora's name is going to be in this upcoming trial. That was from Bill to us. He told us that. Because we said we'll have you on, and then we said we have to ask you about the parts where Mora's name is in your previous trial. And he said, okay, well, then we have to wait for the next one. And we said, oh, okay, we didn't know that her name would be in the trial. Why would we know uh, that? So he says Tim Lance and Renner promoting it and trying to tie that case to Mora. And so I tweeted, no, no, Bill. You now have a legally documented history of stalking an ex-girlfriend. That's from 2019. It caused her to be terrified. That's a quote. An indictment for felony third-degree sexual abuse, and that happened in 2011. The indictment happened in 2019. And he's facing a prison sentence if convicted. And he has a missing ex-girlfriend in Maura Murray. And so what I was saying was that he's the one who ties them together, not because he's necessarily guilty of all those things. As we just said, we're waiting for him to go through court because we don't know if he's guilty about this felony third degree sexual abuse or not. Obviously, we don't know about Mora either. Uh, we do know he was guilty of stalking an ex-girlfriend, though. So my point was he was the thread that tied those together. Not We're not, we're not going out of our way to do that. And, and it all comes back to the confusion that I mentioned in the beginning of this. I'm very confused why this is even happening. I'm very confused that, that it would be a surprise that we would want to wait until his trial's over before having several people on an open platform, including other podcasters and family members and, and people who are investigating Mora's case, Mora's disappearance. I'm very confused why they would think it was some sort of insult for us to say we would we prefer to wait until after the trial. Why in the world would we do that before the trial? We're accused constantly of wanting to do this for fame and ratings and all that. That it, it would be incredible to have that happen. Have everybody together and talk. It would be absolutely incredible. I would like nothing more to do that, but unfortunately one of the members of this conversation will be on trial for sexual abuse soon. So we're going to wait. 
and 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 depending on the findings of that trial will determine whether or not he's ever on the show i personally don't care we've done this long enough without him his voice suddenly really doesn't change anything for me it it's not going to suddenly be this uh windfall of of revenue for us if bill roush joins the show Right. And in fairness, he doesn't know anything he hasn't previously stated anyway. Right. I mean, if we're to believe him. Right. So what what good would the interview do at all? Like him as a big getting a big fish? I don't care. You know, we, we would much rather cover a different case than do that. So we'll see what happens. We'll we'll let the justice system play out in that case. Absolutely. And you just said we, we would rather cover a different case. And I don't want to I mean. I hope people are still listening, and I apologize if it sounds like we're going off. But people went off on 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 this for a long time, and you know I think we owe it to the listeners to have a bit of a rebuttal here, a bit of an explanation. You just said we would rather talk about other cases and have Bill Roush on. Bill Roush didn't do anything public in for Moore's disappearance for a long time. Then he pops up into the scene during these sexual assault allegations, and then he dangles his interview with us. Uh, throughout several phone calls, a couple of Zoom calls, gaining our trust. And what we discover is that he really doesn't know anything more that's already out there. And 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 maybe we gained his trust for a, for a minute, maybe not. But if we were to have him on, we're not learning anything more about, about her disappearance. We're just hearing about their relationship that may or may not be fabricated in the first place. Yeah, I mean, there's some there's some interesting points. I mean, we don't know if he's being completely truthful. I think that we have some evidence that he is not um, being completely truthful about certain things. So, you know, there's something to say for he might know more um, that he's that he's been saying. I don't know, but so so maybe maybe having him on, we could uh, get additional information. I don't know. And one more thing, Bill admitted to being anti-bully Batman on Twitter, and he admitted to this in a phone call with him or a Zoom call with him. And what's really funny about that is that Erin Larkin would not tell us who anti-bully Batman was when we asked her directly. She said that anti-bully Batman emailed her because she was getting accused of it, and then they asked her if they wanted to take, well, I should say Bill, anti-bully Batman, asked Aaron, if she wanted him to take the page down and she said she doesn't care, whatever. She really doesn't give a shit, is what she said. And this contributes to our growing paranoia that there are other accounts out there, whether it's Twitter or Facebook or even some hack attempts that have happened uh, on a on a pretty uh, consistent basis. It adds to our paranoia that there's something going on covertly. These individuals have accused other individuals of using fake accounts on Facebook, on Twitter, uh, in order to attack other people. But the only person that's actually been proven and admitted to using a fake account is Bill Roush with the anti-bully Batman account. But one thing I do want to mention before we play the interview with Patrick Hines here is that we do know that a lot of people have wondered about Aaron and Bill's relationship and how they met and and this kind of thing. And there's a lot of questions about that online, and they never answer it. They never answer it online. They both told us, though, separately that they met in 2019, which is is actually really hard to believe um, when you look at what would have had to have taken place for that to be true. Um, so Aaron meets with Bill's victim before Bill ever meets with Aaron. That sounds really weird to me, but I don't know. Well, I mean, I just don't know why he would have automatically trusted her when it, when it took us like several calls um, to, you know, to build trust with him 
and uh, and so people people wonder if that's true about when they first met. I don't I don't necessarily think that's true. I don't know. I don't have any evidence. So we want to put it out there. If anyone has any evidence, if anyone has any pictures of them together or knows of them having met together before 2019, we would love to hear that. Please email that to us, missingmoramurray at gmail.com. What we do know is that Aaron's first email to us came in December of 2015, and that was a month after Renner alerted Bill to the allegations against him. That happened in November of 2015. So what that is is a bit of circumstantial evidence. I have no idea if that means anything, but did they know each other previously? I don't know. The attitude that's coming up with Patrick's interview is almost the exact opposite of our attitude right now, the mood of the show. So uh, you get a bit of a roller coaster ride with this episode. I just want to say one more quick thing. Uh, I'm sick of victim blaming. Don't victim blame. You have to take everything into account, and that is including the allegations that are against somebody. But you have to question why the person who has essentially a restraining order for stalking why is there this wall that's being built of misinformation, of of misdirection with Moore's disappearance, our work on the case, and others' work on the case? If If there's any leverage happening right now, it's on that end, and they're trying to manipulate the narrative in this case. I can't figure out why, but what really turns my stomach is using the victim as the tool for this manipulation it it's disgusting disgusting and vile to me okay everybody hope you enjoy the interview with patrick hines and don't forget find us thursday night live on get vocal We're, we'll be talking about this and much more about maura murray live on get vocal thursday night and anybody who knows Get Vocal knows that this is a platform in which you can contribute in the chat box. There are four screens. We will obviously have a discussion about Maura Murray, and then when appropriate, we will open up the screens for anybody who we think uh, would be a contributor in a positive direction to the conversation. Any one of Maura's family members is welcome to join. are being joined now by Patrick Hines of True Crime Obsessed and Obsessed with Disappeared. What's up, Patrick? Boys, I miss you so much. I just want to be around you guys. I hate, I hate everything. <laughs> this is a, it's, it's um a special kind of torture, isn't it? You were just saying that you have this, this um beautiful new recording studio or recording booth that you're in and and everything shut down and it's like yeah we had this whole like you guys we had this insane plan for the obsessed network we were rolling out all these new shows and we're like we had this like podcast like studio built like it's the it's the craziest thing i can't believe it's real <laughs> and it was going to be like in use all the time for all the shows we were making and now it's just me sitting in it by myself and that's way less fun well, what are your plans for the Obsessed Network? 
Well, so we are, so we're launching a bunch of new shows, um, and, like, I hate this, but, like, I, I'm not supposed to, like, talk too much about it, but we, so we just launched Obsessed with Disappeared, which is me and my best friend of 20 years, Ellen Marsh. Uh, as you know, we've got a show coming up uh, with Maggie Freeling that's launching now in September. Um, we, I can't say anything about it. I mean, obviously, you guys know all about it, but, like, I'm not allowed to talk about it to the world. Heavily anticipated. Yes. I mean, it's so good. It's so good. I cannot tell you. It is so good. Um, so there's that. We've got, uh, and then we've got a couple other things lined up um, that are coming out later in the year. And so, you know, it's just like not going as quickly as I wanted because the world has come to a screeching halt. I'm super impatient. I like things moving quickly. Um, and I'm being forced to like slow my roll. And I'm really not good at that, you guys. I got to say, uh, even though the world came to a screeching halt and you had big plans with the Obsessed Network, you, this this virus will go away. There will be some relief in sight. I don't know when, a couple of months from now, maybe a year from now, but your network will always be there. You, you have such a strong base of support. And once it does happen, it's going to be goddamn remarkable. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I mean, you know, basically, we're just trying to work with the best people and like make the best stuff. We don't really know what we're doing, but we're being guided by good, smart people. And we're just trying to like, you know, it's like my husband, Steve, who you guys know, is our business manager. And like, he's been full time homeschool teacher. So like, you know, it's been a thing of like me, like keeping the business going and him doing the best he can. And just like all of us trying to keep our heads above water. So it's been just a it's just been a really weird bizarre time for everybody. I mean, I'm grateful to still be working, you know, so there's that and like, you know, I'm busy, so you know, I keep saying that like I kind of put my head down on Monday and start working and then I look up and it's Friday afternoon and I'm like, "All right, I guess that's one week closer to a vaccine than we were at the start of the week, you know." Yeah, it feels like hopping on a roller coaster and you don't get off until the end of the week. Yeah, I know. How are you guys doing? What's going on on your end? Oh, God, everything. Yeah, no, it's just busy. We're growing the network as well, doing all sorts of stuff. A lot, of, a lot more um, live virtual shows. But tell tell us about Obsessed with Disappeared and Ellen Marsh. Yeah, well, do you guys know that I learned about Disappeared because of you guys? Like, I remember one of the first times we met and we were talking about Maura Murray, you were saying that, I think you guys were saying that, like, the first time you really heard about the case was watching it on Disappeared. And I was like, what's Disappeared? And I became obsessed with it. I mean, I'm one of those true crime people who, like, you know how, like, everybody who does what we all do, you sort of have the kind of case that you're the most, like, fascinated by, and mine has always been missing people. I'm fascinated. And, like, it feels shitty to say fascinated, but I'm, like, I'm definitely intrigued by it. Like, the idea that people can just, like, vanish is so crazy to me. Um, and so after, you know, Jillian and I had achieved some success with True Crime Obsessed and I wanted to do a show that focused it, like, more on missing people. Jillian's like, I fucking hate missing people cases. Like... If you guys listen to the True Crime Obsessed More Murray episodes, it starts with her being like, I hate this. There's no answers. And so, I mean, you guys like did a live show with us where we were talking about, you know, like Jillian just can't stand it. So with Jillian's blessing, I asked my friend Ellen Marsh if she would do this with me. And she said, yeah. And, you know, it, it kind of became clear that like the best way for me to make a missing persons podcast was to kind of do what I do, which is just recap stuff. And so I thought, like, what better thing to recap than disappeared? And you guys, it is like the show that just keeps on giving. Look, the first one I ever watched was the Lee Cutler episode. Are you guys familiar with that case? Yes. 
what a fucking bonkers. But I mean, I like I wake up in the middle of the night thinking about that case. Where is he, you guys? Where is he? What are your theories? I don't know. I'd have to review it to have a, an actual theory. It's like so Maura Murray-esque. Yeah, this was in Illinois, right? Um, it was in Illinois, I believe, but he went, he like drove to Wisconsin. Yeah, he was from Illinois, but he drove to Wisconsin and that's where they like found his abandoned car and like a campsite in the woods and, and a note that the family is convinced is not a suicide note. Um, and then he just vanished into thin air and it's just like where, and it's one of those where the cops were on the scene, like within hours. So like if he'd been like devoured by a bear, they would have found something, you know what I mean? This is the one that um, he the the suicide note was in the uh, into the wild book, right? Yes, exactly. And so it was very into the it was it, those overtones of into the wild. You guys breaking into the wild news. They took the bus. Did you see this? Yeah, yeah. They took the bus out of the um um out of the out of the woods. That's like a iconic bus. You guys, I cried. I watched it on the news and I started to cry. What is wrong with me? What's wrong with them? More people see it now, right? Will will they put it in a museum or something, right? They don't have any plans for that yet. And that's the thing that I've been following. So they they took it out of the... So if anybody doesn't know, Into the Wild is a story about this kid, Chris McCandles, who like literally hiked into the Alaskan outback where like 30 miles into the outback, there's this bus where he lived for months and eventually died. And, you know, hikers are hiking there and people like a couple of people have died. But like more moreover, like Alaska was just spending a ton of fucking money sending helicopters to rescue idiots like me who like get there and then can't get back. And so they finally like took the bus out of the woods and like they put it in like a storage unit. But they don't no one is saying that they're putting it in a museum. It's like it's so crazy. Well, something will happen with it. I hope so, Timmy. I think they're going to actually put it. Um, They're going to store it at the. uh state police barracks in new hampshire right next to uh, morris car <laughs> can we go see morris car still like is it available to be seen it's it's under lock and key now yeah they moved it to like the criminal uh lot where like a car where someone would be would have been murdered in would be oh god uh whereas before it wasn't it was just kind of uh behind one of the state police barracks for years i want to see the car you guys you guys got to see it we sure did yeah it's pretty haunting to see it uh timmy or lancy look at listen what like the whole last moments of your documentary which i love so much where you guys are driving away from seeing the car and you are talking about how like the car was alive and was going to eat you it's like my favorite moment in any movie of all time (laughs) it is that moment has given me so much joy i it is so funny because I understand exactly what you're saying. I have watched that over and over and over again because you're trying to get Tim to like understand and Tim's like driving. One, whoever's not driving, the other one is like, girl, can you settle down a little bit? <laughs> and it's so great because like it, Lance is like really amped about like, no, but like the car was like a lot. It was like lurching. Oh I remember and he Tim goes was lurching. Like, uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. I wish you would have been there because the way it all went down, we we did not expect it to be right there in the open. And when we went around the building and the the headlights just kind of scanned the perimeter and then the the car kind of dipped down a little bit, like our car that we were driving, dipped down a little bit. And it's sort of like when it came up, it kind of bounced. The headlights kind of bounced on Moore's car and it did. It looked like the way the shadows all came up, it, it just looked like the car had like 
lurched up. For you guys, like in that moment too, it was like at the end of such a like a journey. You know what I mean? Where you guys are like, oh, it's exhausting. Exhausting, and like you're you you were so in it, like you were so emotionally invested in that moment. I totally get it. Like I totally can understand that feeling of like holy fucking shit. Like that's the car. Yeah, it's crazy. I was talking to Julie yesterday. We did like a a um an Instagram live with Julie, and we were talking about. She was saying I didn't know anything about this, but apparently the New Hampshire State Senate. I'm sure you guys know all about this. Had been trying to get the blue ribbon taken down off of the tree where. More crashed and I guess they're they, like they're considering it a roadside memorial and they, they want it taken down and Julie was really fighting it and the Senate decided to kill the bill for the moment so it was like a big win yesterday but um it's it's that it's that kind of thing where like like that play you know it's the same for me as the car like you know someday I'll go to that that tree and see that ribbon and just like be in that place and I totally understand that feeling when you do go up there make sure you knock on the doors of all the neighbors and jokes <laughs> he's joking I hear they love that I hear they're super into it they love it we'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsor It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Thanks to our sponsors, and now we're back to the program. So, you know, I I, I watched the Disappeared episode recently um, in, in preparation for this, and it really is nice to revisit it to kind of have that that those fresh eyes because we haven't done a Maura Murray episode in months, and uh, and so you know we we actually have, in the first time in really years, had the ability to kind of step back a little bit. And so I'm, I'm glad to have watched this with you and or uh, to have watched this and to be able to talk about it with you because you also know. It's OK, Timmy. You can tell people that I came over and watched. We watched it together. It's fine. It's fine that people know that we snuggled uh... from from six feet apart. <laughs> we snuggled. What about the format? Like, is there anything about the format that jumps out at you in this like like any of the anything that's there or not there that immediately jumps out at you? You know, I I think that like it's so interesting because in general the thing about disappeared that I think is so interesting. And I and I and I wonder how they pitch like how the producers pitch it to people. Like they will in other episodes. They will like like they're they're trying to give you sort of entertainment like they're they are like letting suspects linger throughout the episode that they know didn't do it and so it's sort of like so so that like halfway through the episode they could be like and then the alibi was revealed and that person didn't do it and now we're going to focus on this one and it's that sort of structure of the show is, is surprising to me because it's sort of like how are you getting like how like it's kind of i feel like the show was made before we started having the real conversation about like true crime as entertainment and what are the ethics of that um and but like specifically for the mora episode i mean you know th- like 
I think that like Fred, like seeing Fred be so vulnerable, I think that's kind of amazing. I think it, you know, it is so effective in getting you to sort of like pay attention to the story. Um, I, you know, there were things that I didn't know that like, uh, you know, I was saying to Julie, like, I didn't know about that phone call, that sort of like whimpering phone call. I didn't know about the sighting at the, you know, they showed a Cumberland Farms. I don't know if that's real or not, but like, I didn't know about that either. It's so haunting, the idea of like being the last person to have talked to her. That's so haunting. Yeah. And oh, you wanted to know what he was doing, what Butch Atwell was doing driving at that point at night. Yeah. Yeah, Butch, what are you doing, girl? Apparently he was returning um, children or uh, kids, I guess, from from some kind of uh, ski trip that had taken place that weekend. Oh. You guys, I have one basic question for you. Sure. Where is she? I'll give you a general I'll give you a general idea that I think she's still in New Hampshire. I mean, to to go down like a really dark to to get really dark for just a second, like is there you know, in talking to Julie, the, you know, Julie says that she thinks that Mora is no longer alive. Um, but is there any chance that there's some sort of remember that guy in Cleveland that kept those three women? Is there any chance there's a situation like that happening where she's been brainwashed and she's somewhere? Definitely. I mean, I'd say there's a chance. Yeah, I, I don't think it's likely, but there's definitely a chance. But if if that were to come out that there was uh, some uh, compound up in that area within like maybe two miles and it came out that she had, you know, she escapes one day, I would think that that's that would blow my mind. But there would be something in the back of my head where I, I would say, OK, I I'm not really that surprised. <laughs> I mean, can I ask a question about, like, what what do you think the, would be her life if Maura Murray were ever discovered alive? She would never, ever, ever be left alone. I mean, I guess it depends, right? Depends what she was hiding from. I don't know. It's hard to say. I mean, there, there's there's so much activity around her disappearance and around her past and her family. It would be, it would be a shit show for, for at least... At least a year, at least a year of just like nonstop. Yeah. I was asking Julie yesterday, like, you know, what's the one, the one misconception? If you could like correct one or two things, like set the record straight, what would it be? And she was like, um, that my family's not hiding anything. And I was like, oh, right. There are people who actually think that your family is hiding something. How, I mean, I I feel like it's got to be tough to be the Murrays when like you're just trying to find the missing family member. And there are people out there who think they're helping, who are just making it so much worse. I just can't imagine that. Yeah, it's definitely tough. And I, I don't believe the Murrays are hiding anything. I think they're, uh, you know, one of the first things Julie ever said to us was, we know nothing more than everyone in this room knows. And we were surrounded by a room of people who knew about the case, you know, in the way that we do. Yeah, and I feel like you talk to her for one minute and you're like, oh, obviously. You know what I mean? Like, you know? Yeah, she's very authentic. Yeah, and th- one of the things she said to me yesterday that just was so heartbreaking was like you know in talking about the memorial on the side of the road and how the new hampshire state senate is trying to like get rid of it she was saying she's like i don't have ashes i don't have a gravesite. i don't have a place i can go and visit that's the one place i have that i and a few friends go a couple times a year to be with mora and i was like oh my god how could you take that away from a family how could you do that yeah no that's tough that's tough 
I was like, can we just buy the land? Like, there's got to be a way that we can just buy that plot of land. It can't be that expensive. <laughs> it's probably not that expensive, but... I mean, when you look at this area that the the blue ribbons at, it's it is a hairpin turn, and I'm not I'm not I'm certainly not defending uh, taking it down, but I can see where neighbors will look at that and and you know there's there's a lot of activity that goes on there. A lot of strangers park their car right there at uh, Old Peter's Road, or they'll park at the um, old weathered barn, and they'll walk up there. And it's you know it's not a very it's not a safe stretch of road by by any means, especially from one direction. Yeah, and Julie was saying, she's like, you know, the people of this town, like, they didn't ask for this. It's a small community. I totally get it. I totally get it. But it's, you know, I also feel like when something shitty happens in your neighborhood, like, you, like it's nobody's fault. But, like, are you really going to take this away from the family? You know, and it's sort of like the, like. Don't you want to know? Yeah, I know. And it's like the me's of the world. Like, I'm the one who should, I have no business going there. I, I'm definitely going to go there, but I shouldn't because I'm the problem. You know what I mean? But I think um where the, the issue lies is that they're saying they're going to take it down. It would be nice if they provided an alternative. If they said, we're going to take it down, but let us know where, where another significant spot might be that could represent your daughter or your sister. Who, what can represent Mora? And we will commission that spot as being like an official, uh, you know, commemorative spot. But just to be like, no, we're taking it down because people are pissed in the area that they had something happen to them that they didn't ask for. It's like, you know, it's fucking life also. Like, I'm sorry. I, it. And it's also not going to stop anybody from going there. Like, just, you take, it, like, you know what I mean? We all know where, I'm still going to go, ribbon or no ribbon, New Hampshire. Try and stop me, girl. I have a pitch. How about at Beaver Pond, right up the road, uh, it's a beautiful, there's a couple of parking lots. It's beautiful. There's a little pond, or it's not even that little. It's beautiful. There's mountains up there. How about a statue of Mora running up there? There you go. And then no problem with cars because they every there's a parking lot. No, can I not to shift gears too like drastically? But can I ask a question? So Julie was saying. So I've got like so many thoughts on this. She was saying that like the reason. So in order for the family to ever get access to the police files, they have to close the case, right? But they can't close the case unless there's a resolution. But couldn't isn't it possible that a resolution could be more quickly like attained if they were to turn the documents over to the family for like I don't understand why if Julie is saying you know you guys have gone through her computer records that's what we're the most interested in seeing because you guys might be looking at something that means nothing to you but might mean something important to us why can't they look at that in an effort to help more swiftly close the case you know yeah I I would have to imagine they have something that isn't public you know and and i know that you guys in your interview you and julie spoke about the quote of the 75 percent chance of conviction at some point and that's why we can't release these files to you and i was really thinking about this and trying to rack my brain and i wonder if it's just obviously i think they believe well they know it's a suspicious disappearance that's how they treat it so it's kind of a, a criminal investigation to for for the most part so I just wonder if they're taking a step down that road and they're saying whoever would have done this is most likely a random person because I think all everyone on this call can agree that more most likely willingly got into a car whether she knew the person or not I I think that's definitely up for debate still 
Um, but she was in a random part of the world, pretty random to her. So is a good chance it was someone random's car she got into. So I think my, my point is the percentage might come in with if that person did something to Mora, the percentage that they either told somebody or had somebody else involved in it or acted weird or something or potentially can't help but screw up at some point in the future again. And they know based on science that that personality type you know, with all those factors, there's a 75% chance they're going to find out who did it. I mean, for me, that makes that makes total sense. I mean, like, you know, for them to have told the Murrays that there's a 75% chance it's going to lead to a conviction conviction tells me that they at, at least think think they know who did it, right? I mean, they like, you know, it'd be one thing if it was like, you know, a 25% chance of a conviction, meaning multiple suspects. It could be any one of these people, but we think over time we'll probably get them. 75% to me says we know who it is. It's just a matter of can we prove it. Right. I, I was going to say I, I have a kind of a boring answer to that, which is from their point of view, if if their guidelines are to not share information even with family members, then they can't do it even with the Murrays. Because if they do it with the Murrays, that just opens up the floodgates for other families to start uh, soliciting them for for more case files. And if they just set the standard that this doesn't happen, then the Murrays are just one of many that it's just not happening with. Because they can't set they they can't go against that precedent. Do you, but does it happen in some cases where they will say, hey, you know, we've seized a bunch of stuff. We can't show you most of it, but we do have some questions about, you know, these emails that she wrote, like, in the two days before she went missing. Can you read these and tell us if any of this stands out to you? Because I feel like that's all they want, you know? Oh, I'm I'm sure. You have to really admire Fred's um, determination and his his stamina in keeping this going. Early on, though, he didn't do himself any favors by by threat by by. Did he actually sue them, or was it a threat of lawsuit? But he no, he sued them. Yeah, it's in the disappeared episode. Yeah, yeah, they, they'll always share more with the direct family members of missing people and and cases like this than they will with media or the public. Yeah, I agree. I, you know, I think that the the thing is, I, like, I I feel like I understand where he was coming from. Where he, I I think that in his heart, he was doing it to show Mora in his heart that he was doing everything he could. You know, like I get that, and it's like there's no like there's no roadmap for what to do. You know, in a situation like this, I mean, like I think about like the Johnny Gosh documentary where like that movie opens with Johnny Gosh mother driving to another town to talk to like two other parents whose kid had just gone missing did you guys see this documentary on netflix no what is it it's called the um it's called where's johnny i think and i think johnny gosh was from i wanted to, i thought it was massachusetts but maybe not he was a kid that went missing like on his paper route when he was like 12 years old and there's you know like more there's all these conspiracy theories about what happened to him and where he is and his mother you know like she like would now she like goes around the country to families who like like who like yesterday had their kid go missing and like counsels them on what to do but it's so, you know, it's like, like I, I have, if something were to happen to Daisy, if Daisy were to just vanish, I cannot imagine the insane person I would become. Yeah. It, I mean, especially in the days, like right around the early uh, searches, how, and, 
and I can't imagine what I would do later on when I find out that a bunch of people have been analyzing my behavior in the days right after the search. It's like, for example, the way people analyze Julie's behavior or Bill's behavior or Fred's behavior. And they, they'll, they'll question things about, you know, well, Fred said this. He said that she did this. He said she's probably she probably took her life up there. And it's like, well, what would you say? You know, if you were... Like really, like your your daughter's missing. You're so he slipped up. You know, like the the. Yeah, no, I can't even think about it. Exactly. And he and he certainly doesn't know that ten years later someone's going to be analyzing that line and they're going to say, "Well, he's covering it up. He said it because of this." And he's like, "No, I'm just literally saying anything I can to get the cops to look into the woods." Right. Exactly. Well, he was just th- throwing everything he could at the wall. Like, wh- you know, he doesn't know what happened, obviously. Uh, yeah, and and that stood out to me in the in the in the disappeared episode as well, which is like, you know, Mark comes home at four in the morning, having like crashed his car, and you know, he screamed at her. He like screamed and yelled at her. He had to have done that, you know. And it's like y- you can see how bad he feels now. And it's like, oh, Fred, girl, you got to let yourself off the hook. When your kid does ten thousand dollars worth of damage to your car, you're allowed to be mad, you know. Well, he knew that Mora was terribly upset. You know, the last time he saw her, so that like that's a pretty good indication. She, she, you know, th- that's a fact. She was upset. So that's pretty logical of Fred to think. I, I know he regrets saying it now, but. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, like, are we going to ever find out? Are we going to get to the bottom of this? 75% chance, Patrick. <laughs> I know. I mean, because I agree with what you're saying to me. Like, I think that, you know, there's no way whoever did whatever they did to Mora, there's no way that another person doesn't know. Somebody knows what somebody did. That or the personality type, especially if it's just some rando up there who maybe lives alone or something. Zero chance that person can stay straight the entire time. Yeah. I mean, and do you think it's the kind of thing, like, are we looking at a deathbed confession someday? Like something that somebody's going to want credit for at some point? It's possible. Yeah, I think it's possible for a confession or even perhaps if the killer is an older person for them to die and maybe that person told someone or maybe that person was acting weird and that person is afraid. Or maybe uh, maybe that person will screw up. You know, the killer will screw up and get prison time and then things will change then. It's also it's also crazy how many people we've heard uh, how many stories we've heard that that people have claimed that they've killed Mora? I mean, there are stories about people at cookouts, and they'll they'll uh, talk about how they that they're the ones that that helped like pour concrete on the body or something. Or there's a you know, in, someone gets mad at somebody else and says, "I'll do I'll do what I did to Mora to you." And I mean, it's and I, I feel like some people know that that suspicion is on them, and they know that they didn't do it but they they're just having fun with it. You know, they're having fun with uh with the notoriety. That. The notoriety, absolutely. Yeah. Because like what's going to happen? You're going to look into me and I'm gonna, I'm going to say, "No, I was just making a flippant comment. I wasn't I wasn't really being serious." Like, look at Alden Olsen. You know, he basically was like, "Yeah, I got her." Like without saying it. He <laughs> and then but he could fall back on like, "No, it's just my right to parody uh something." And what's that guy's deal? Like, is he is he a criminal? Is he, like he is the most that guy is like, ugh, just talking about him makes my blood boil. Where is he? What's his life? Yeah, he's an older guy. He made a video called Happy Anniversary uh, and it was real and he released it on YouTube on I think it was the nine year anniversary of Mora's disappearance. 
and uh, it was him cackling at the screen and really kind of taunting, and then he stops cackling at the drop of a dime and then winks at the camera, and that fades to happy anniversary. You can find the video out there on YouTube. It's known kind of in internet lore as one of the creepier videos uh, out there. It's made some of those lists. We heard from a private investigator that he was actually investigated in Moore's disappearance before those videos were made. I don't know if that's true or not. Oh, wow. But if that's true, I think that's interesting. But he lives in Massachusetts, or at least at the time lived in Massachusetts, kind of near Amherst, where Mora went, uh, w- was going to college at the time. So there is a chance that they had some interaction. So it's, it's r- really weird at the very least. I mean, you know, all the questions, all the questions that, like, make this case so fascinating. It's like, what was she doing there? Why was she in that town, you know? Yeah, I mean that the the road is a is a cut through between the um the the two highways and it is en route to a place where she could have gone to stay like you know Bretton Woods or something like that. So it was it was a route to some place. I know that sounds really <laughs> really generic, but but it's not. I don't think it's as random as a lot of people uh, perceive it to be, especially people who have never been there, and especially people who uh, see the case just on the surface. And and when they hear that it was a rural area in the White Mountains, a lot of people picture there to be mountains everywhere, and she's on a mountain road, you know. And there's these like significant drop-offs. It it was rural, but it was it was a pretty well-traveled main road through there, uh, and. It would be odd of her to not have gone that way if you're thinking she was going to a location like Bretton Woods or something. Here's my question. Did she have credit cards? Like, if she was planning to go away for a week, how was she going to do that on $286? I don't know. I don't think she had credit cards. She had her debit card, but I don't think she had credit cards. She had credit card numbers that she used, uh, but I don't think that she actually had a credit card. I could be totally wrong. Yeah, I don't know. Good question. When that woman was interviewed uh, in the documentary about, like, you know, Maura had called her to inquire about renting her cabin, how much was that a night, you know? That's a good question. I'm not sure that we know that. That, that was uh, Linda Salamone. Yeah, I'm not sure we know the answer to that. Really good question, though, back in 2004. I mean, that's one of the things that makes me feel like she was either meeting somebody or traveling with somebody because, like, how else was she going to pay for a week away? Yeah. I mean, she took as much out of her bank account as she could without it closing the account. Yeah. You also talked about the Red Cross call in uh, in your episode and uh, and I think a little bit with Julie too. Yes. And um it is it is kind of interesting cuz it it came through to Bill uh Moore's boyfriend at the time uh while he was at the airport uh heading out from Oklahoma to um New Hampshire to go search for his girlfriend. And Bill didn't answer it. It went to voicemail and and he said it sounded like kind of like whimpering. Um, and the police heard it. I remember him telling us that he played it for the people in the room, the police. And so I don't know if they actually physically still have it or what, Um, but apparently they traced it to something involving the Red Cross, whether it be a calling card or whether it be a calling center. I think there's some conjecture there, and we know from the Disappeared episode where Sharon Rausch, Bill's mom, said that they had just given Mora some of those calling cards uh, in the Disappeared episode, right? Yeah. And don't forget, they also got more of that good long-distance towing. She was very proud of that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> right. But I would say that I-, I don't think this call was Mora um, because... 
if you're in a dire situation, first of all, there's hardly any cell service up there. So if you're if you're using your phone to, to if you're using your cell phone, you're gonna just call the number probably, or or maybe it's long distance. So maybe, but you're in a situation where you can't talk and you have to whimper. I just don't think you'd be calling, you'd be pressing ten extra numbers or whatever it is to dial uh, to use the calling card. You know, if you're in in an emergency situation where theoretically, if that was really Mora, someone whimpering, that was that situation. And I think too, and like, and I don't mean to like discredit anything that anybody said they heard, but I think I think that memory is fickle, and I think if that if they didn't if they didn't save the voicemail and he only heard it that one time or a couple times over the years it becomes the thing that you thought it was you know like in your brain like if you think it was whimpering but like you weren't paying that close attention to it until you realized your girlfriend was really missing like you know it's memory is weird that way and it's like you know i know the idea out there is that bill had something to do with this does that hold any water for you guys well i mean he's got a he's he's got an alibi he's he's got an alibi he was he was not there. He was several several hundred miles away. He, so there, he did not physically do anything to her. Yeah, and I, that never made any sense to me either. I mean, what about Israel Keys? I, that was a big question that we were getting in our Facebook group that I didn't want to ask Julie because to me it sounds a little ridiculous. But like, what do you guys think about Israel Keys? It's it's a little far fetched. Obviously, he's a, a, a serial killer who did work uh, and work. I mean, kill people work, in right. uh, the the uh, New England area. I believe he even called Vermont or New Hampshire his stomping ground. Yeah, so so it's interesting. He did bury kill kits around the country. Some of them are probably still out there in the woods somewhere. Um, and kill kill kits like knives and plastic ties and things like that. Friggin' terrifying. Duct tape and guns and cash. Yeah, I mean, it's oh, it's terrifying. But no, I don't think there's any evidence to really suggest that it was Israel Keys in Mora's case. I think uh, the FBI has all but ruled him out or even potentially completely ruled him out in uh, Mora's case. Um, before we lose this uh, thought, Patrick, you said something that's really fucking interesting and it's sticking in my head. Uh, the amount of the amount of money that she took out and the destination she was going, and you said, "I wonder how much money it would take to stay at one of these places." And she she probably wasn't looking for like a Motel Eight. She she had called places that were like one eight hundred Ghost O, yeah, like resorts. Yeah, and so and she also just spent money. I think she took out how much, like two hundred and sixty dollars or something from her bank account. And then she spent like forty or fifty or something on the on the alcohol, so she she wasn't so concerned about how much physical money she had on her. She spent money on the alcohol. She got gas, so maybe she was around like a hundred and eighty dollars by the time she got to that point in New Hampshire. So how much money would it have taken to? I mean, maybe that would be one night. At, at like uh, Gosto or something like that or Brenton Woods? Look, the money is a clue. I mean, like... You're right. You know, I'm not saying I cracked it, but, you know... It I, is a clue, yeah. But, like, yeah, the money... I mean, you know, that really... That stood out to me when I watched the Disappeared episode. I mentioned it in our episode. Like, how... She, like, how long... Like, the money tells us something. It tells us either that she wasn't planning to be away for long or that she she was meeting somebody who was footing the bill for where she was going. Right, or that money wasn't going to be that much of an issue for where she was going because she was meeting somebody who probably said, like you said, they were footing the bill. Maybe, maybe they were like, "Yeah, just you know, grab a couple hundred bucks and and uh, and meet me here, or something." 
Right. And I, you know, I don't, I don't put any weight in the suicide theory, but, or also that like, she wasn't going to need money because it wasn't, she wasn't going to need it, you know? Right. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. That is, that is really interesting. I'm going to go to the old uh, drawing board, the whiteboard on this one. <laughs> um, If you could just put a little P, put a little PH right next to that, I'd really appreciate it on the board. Yeah, absolutely. Well, what's what's bananas is that people ask all the time, what what is so fascinating about this case? They ask it all the time. Why do people get obsessed with this case? And it's because of this reason. Like, Tim and I have been doing this for so long, and we have this conversation at 1130 in the morning, and all of a sudden there's a detail that we always talk about, the money. And then you mention that, and it's like, I've never thought of that. I never thought about what that money would be used for. It's a clue. Well, I like the way you identified it as a clue. Yeah, it is a clue. It's a significant clue that someone else was going to be present with her because she wasn't, she was obviously. Right. Or that she wasn't going to be there for very long. Yeah, I mean, does that tell us why she was there? I mean, you know, Julie or somebody said that, like, she may have just been going to clear up some sort of, like, license charge, reinstatement fee or something like that. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I think she would have maybe had more cash if that was the case. I don't know if you can pay in cash for that. Whether or not she had credit cards is an interesting question, you know, to... like to know if like that's how she would have been footing the bill forever she was staying maybe I mean and that's why it would have been interesting like if they had talked to Linda Salamone or whatever that woman's name was like we could have gotten information about what was like what price would she have quoted her that would still be interesting information yeah yeah that is that is very interesting information Anyway, you're welcome, you guys. I'm so glad you've been able to solve the more Marie case. Um, send <laughs> cases to Patrick at truecrimeobsessed.com. When a person goes missing, their loved ones often find themselves overcome with worry and grief. Bruce Maitland started the 501c3 nonprofit organization, Private Investigations for the Missing, because he knows this feeling all too well. When Bruce's daughter, Brianna, disappeared in March 2004, he was surrounded by licensed private investigators dedicated to finding her. Now his mission is to provide dedicated private investigators at no cost to other families of the missing, desperate for answers but without the financial means. Private Investigations for the Missing needs your help. To read the mission statement, make a donation, and keep up with our blog, visit us at investigationsforthemissing.org and follow us at PI for the Missing on Twitter and Facebook and Investigations for the Missing on Instagram. Because forever is too long to wait.